I'm honestly not opposed to baseball year-round. I'm opposed to playing baseball year-round, but I'm not opposed to training for baseball year-round, if that makes sense. Hey, this is More Than Velocity. I am Bart Pear here with Ryan Croton and Jordan Oseguera, and today we are talking about Pitching guidelines, pitch counts, um, you know, regulating how many pitches uh, these athletes throw depending on their age and, and activity level. Uh, there's a few different sources that have been put out. Uh, we have put out our own. Uh, Arm Care has their own pitch count regulations, uh, which uh, obviously we uh, endorse and condone and feel like they're they're the, the ones that are going to be best for keeping your arm healthy and performing at the highest level throughout your entire career. Not focused on this winning this game today as being the most important thing, but the, you know, that your kid's career is the most important thing and and giving them the potential to go as far as possible. So that's kind of the overall, but Ryan Croton, um, I'm going to pass it off to you and explain. I want you to explain why we created our own uh, pitch count guidelines. Yeah. Um, you know, first, I, I kind of want to point to what's going on scientifically, because people have been researching this um, for people who are not aware uh, throwing arm injuries, particularly for the elbow, are at the highest point ever uh, in the history of the game. So um, the, the scary thing is that in players ages 15 to 19, um, they are they are showing that they're most susceptible. So when you think about that age range, we have to consider what's going on before it um, and, uh, you know, account for uh, accountability. Um, There was a study that was put out that 92% of coaches actually don't follow the pitch count guidelines that were put out by um, uh, Smart Pitch. And, um, you know, that's kind of frightening. Uh, to be honest, because the coaches are really the ones responsible for managing workloads. And when they're not following these these guidelines, it's exposing athletes to risk. And, and this, this risk gets compounded each year. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing a lot more adolescent injuries. And, uh, you know, people are just not aware of overuse issues. You know, the amount of innings thrown per year, the amount of pitches thrown per year, their days rest, there's lots of different things. And, and as athletes throw harder, we need to be able to have better uh, understanding of how to progress them and how to give them the right recovery um, in the schedule, you know. And so, you know, we've developed our own, you know, based on a few different different features. And, uh, you know, I can go through them. I'll, I'll let Jordan, you know, speak a little bit on this as well. But you know, we can kind of give some of the foundations in terms of why we think the pitch count standards need adjusting. Yeah, so, you know, you say that number 92% of coaches aren't aren't following the guidelines, and you look at it and go, well, that's a lot. But when you say it, it's not shocking. You know, it's like no one's surprised at it. You know, I've, I've coached, you know, in high school. I've coached in college. I've coached in professional baseball. I've coached in the private industry. And I have talked to coaches of all age ranges. And before they had, you know, more detailed tracking aspects, 
even at the high school level, they're still not tracking pitch to pitch. But in pro ball, they used to call it pencil whipping the chart, where they'd go in with a pencil, they'd change the chart. So now instead of that pitcher going, you know, 89 pitches, he only went 77 pitches. And they'd go through, oh, I tweak a count here, I change this one here, so now they can pitch that guy a little longer. And the same thing would happen in high school baseball when they're not keeping track of these. And I mean, me and Ryan have been in the draft room together to find pitch information on a college player. Good luck. You know, we have guys, you know, at major division ones in the SEC, you know, the Pac-12, you can't find game log data for how many pitches they threw on a regular basis. And then you get into high school and you have one or two guys on the team that are throwing strikes and whoever the home team is is in charge of submitting those pitch counts for the rest of the week so they know who's able to throw what. They might fudge a little bit on the end of saying, well, this guy only threw 72 pitches. He didn't get to that 75, so he can now bounce back depending on that state's regulations and on Saturday now instead of having to wait till Monday to throw again. So it's not shocking to me that 92%, and that's it's a really high number, and I think the reason it's not shocking is just because I've had so many conversations with people over whatever it's been, 15 years now, is, is a coach to some extent, and, and, you, and you hear some strange stories when it comes to pitch counts. I know. I mean – when you're talking about the professional model, that, that's one thing that I think is unbelievably bizarre to me is that with a pro pitcher who is more, you know, mature, skeletally, um, you know, stronger athlete, we are very rigid usually with taking pitch counts. I mean, they're charting pitches at least. And yet when our kids are in the most vulnerable state, you know, when they're growing, and the bodies are not coordinated and, um, you know, they're exposed to all these different growth plate issues. You know, people aren't paying attention to this stuff. You know, they, they're just not. And uh, I, I just find it, you know, really interesting uh, as a parallel between how careful coaches are and, and administrators, you know, front offices are with pitch counts. And it's a big deal. Um, you know, sometimes pitchers get sent down in a major league season because they don't want them to hit a certain pitch count. Like it is incredibly strict um, or they're approaching limits and this isn't happening unanimously. So, so like I said, we've, we've created our own pitch count guidelines and we're recording this about the time that they're, um, they're cleaning up the PDFs that we're going to hand out. So, um, once this is published, um, that should be out. I mean, there'll be links here, and I'll provide uh, links if you go onto our thearmcare.com website. Um, you'll be able to find them in the blog. You'll be able to find them, so you can see. Um, but it, it's just—it's surprising to me that we know fatigue is the number one cause of injury, and yet we've got you know pitchers who are who are constantly—you know—the best guys are the ones who are being pushed to be throwing when they're fatigued, they're, they're, you're pushing it and you're just, you're just risking so much. So we know that, um, which is, it takes into account of our pitch count guidelines, but we also know that the start of the season is when a lot of injuries happen. And so one of the key things about our, our pitch count guidelines is that we have a ramp up phase, um, during, you know, the first three plus outings um, that take that into account to, that looks at science and say this is where the issues are happening and so our guidelines should reflect that so um, I, I'm going to pull up um, as we're talking some of the guidelines and this isn't the final PDF I just have some of the notes of it and I'll let you guys talk about it but that's one of the things I, I 
that I really like about these guidelines. And so I'm going to do that. And I want, I want Ryan to you, you to kind of talk about what is this ramping up um, early season part of the guidelines. Sure. Awesome. Okay. Um, so I'll begin. So the concept of ramping up the current uh, standards that are uh, done by pitch smart, they assume that the pitcher, as soon as they hit the first game, that they're ready, they're game ready to throw at their maximum pitch counts. And, you know, in, in my experience in professional baseball and, and being around pitching coaches and, and watching them chart bullpens and take in velocities, the velocities in a bullpen session are usually between four and six miles per hour lower um, than the average velocities in games. And, you know, as we know from science that um, velocity and loading on the elbow are paralleled. So that means if I increase my velocity by a mile an hour, it increases my load by a mile per hour. We're probably not exposing the throwing arm to game loads, you know, by just doing bullpens. And, and especially if the off-season throwing program for a pitcher doesn't have simulated games, there's going to be a, a much lower conditioning effect for the beginning of the season. So um, what we need to do is we need to extend that progressive overloading at the beginning of the year, you know, and so for the, for each age group, you know, starting at 10 years old, um, we, we start them out at 70%. We, we give them a, you know, the lowest possible percentage that they can get through most of the game. And um, we, we give them, uh, a graded increase of 10% each week until in the first month they hit their maximum. And again, this takes us a little bit further towards the safe zone of the season because we know March, April, May are really high injury uh, risk months for pitchers. And so part of the reason I believe is that the, the throwing programming and the pitch counts are not graduated. So that pitcher may throw at 100%, especially our best pitchers. Those guys are going to be throwing most of the games. And coaches, I know in college, I was a college baseball coach. I mean, we rode our, our starting pitchers, our number ones, really hard. You know, we needed that first win of a series. And those guys are going as deep as possible. So you, you might get that pitcher from the get-go. They're throwing at their 100% limit, and they're not ready. They, they just have not been progressed well enough in the offseason. So that's why we have this graduated approach to our pitch counts. Jordan, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, to give a little more context to it is, you know, not every high school is going to be able to have a, a buildup to where their player on day one, start of the season, their, their number one starter is going to be able to be at 100% max. He might have just come from basketball season. He might have just got done with wrestling season or whatever other sport he's playing to where he hasn't had that appropriate ramp up. So it's important to understand not everyone's ready for 100% max on, on day one. Some universities, they get that opportunity. You know, the way that uh, um, I don't know if the rules have changed from when I was coaching at the NAI level or not, but we were allowed just to pick X amount of weeks throughout the year. So we would take a four-week early comeback in the sense or three weeks. I don't remember from the start of the season. So now we have three weeks and then two weeks. So we have five weeks before our first game starts plus classes to where we could acclimate. And we did that, you know, you know, 70%, 80 percent, you know, 90%. And then all of a sudden on, you know, week one, we have two weeks of a, in a sense, a deload to where now we can do some higher intensity inner squads, get these guys ready. 
And then we start game one, and now our guy's ready to go start of the season. So we'd always work backwards using that same formula. And the big thing that changes when you get into pro ball is everyone builds these guys up all the way through spring training. They build them up all the way through extended for the short season group. But then all of a sudden you go from playing on field 17 next to Whataburger, and now you're playing in a stadium with a couple thousand people in it. You have scouts. You have radar guns. You have, you know, people heckling you, trying to warm up in the bullpen, and, you know, someone's it, – it, it's crazy, especially when you get into the minor league setting, and it gets even crazier when you get into the, into the big league setting to where there's so much added stress, not just physically like Ryan was talking about, but the mental aspect. And then you get into a game, and now you have to worry about, you know, bunt plays, first and thirds, uh, balls in play, where are you supposed to go? You have, you know, control in the running game. And everything else that comes along with that, who's up on deck? And you're handling all these things that there's an added load from the not just the physiological but the mental side of it. And that factors into these pitch counts as well that pe- no one ever takes that into consideration. You know, day one, there's very few guys. There's not a lot of Max Scherzers in the world that are ready to go a max pitch count day one of the season. That makes perfect sense. Um so yeah, so that's something you will definitely jump out at you when you when you check out our guidelines. The other thing you're going to notice is that our ages start at the age 10, and there's a lot of guidelines out there that start at uh, you know as low as age seven or, or even lower. Um, we have a uh, a reason that we did that. What um I'll let you explain, Ryan. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, kids need to learn how to be repeatable. And usually what happens when we work with young kids is we teach them one pitch. So they're not very, they don't have a lot of variability and they're throwing fastballs, you know, they're, and they're trying to throw as fast as possible, which is, you know, the nature of the sport. Um, but they're not really mechanically efficient. And, and what can happen is that um, not only is it bad for the pitcher's development, but it's also bad for the hitter's development because they're not getting strikes. You know, you got a seven-year-old that's throwing the ball all over the place. The batter doesn't really learn very much about the strike zone. They're not getting a lot of pitches to attack and, and, and make contact. The defense doesn't get a lot of opportunities to work on their skills. It really brings down the quality of baseball at a young age um, for their development. And I think we lose a lot of young players because of this, because they get bored. You know, I was, I was, a busy, I went from soccer and basketball to baseball and, and my parents didn't put me into baseball until I was nine years old. My first time ever playing baseball is about nine years old. Um, I missed the T-ball and all those, those levels um, that would have made the game really slow. And I might not have been so passionate about it. And so we need to have time too to coach pitchers. You know, there needs to, we, we need to actually have solid coaching programs from when they're a young age um, that they don't have the pressure of throwing to batters and that they can work on just finding the glove um, and, and being consistent. You know, do they have the the right movement mechanics that are basic to throw? Um, and again, you know, they're they're very young bodies and they're they're very moldable. And so what we don't know is with chronic throwing, chronic pitching, what it might do to the joints later on. You know, nobody's really done that research other than there was one study in 1965 that looked at nine to 14 year old kids. And they found that every single elbow of a pitcher had some type of asymptomatic um, maladaptation. There are problems with it. And so if we can 
teach them the right mechanics. We can manage them early and, and wait until they're 10 years old to, to compete. They may be healthier in the future. Um, we might have a, a greater participation in the sport of baseball. Yeah, just, just to kind of piggyback on that, you know, this is discussions me and Ryan have been having for probably five years, maybe longer now, that baseball almost has it flipped on the models of development to where we play more than we practice at the ages that we should be practicing more than we play. And yeah. everyone wants to run this model of, you know, year-round baseball. I'm honestly not opposed to baseball year-round. I'm opposed to playing baseball year-round. But I'm not opposed to training for baseball year-round, if that makes sense. You know, because there's you can really limit, you know, stresses. You can make sure you're working on things to stay repeatable, to get more consistent with what those tools are. Whatever your skill set is, you know, those are things that need to be focused on. Uh, I'm not saying uh, a seven-year-old should be pitching, you know, nine months of the year. I don't think a seven-year-old should be pitching competitively. And one of the things that shocks me is, you know, I've, I've looked at some of these pitch counts that are out there. Um, there's there's organizations that have looser restrictions on a 17-year-old than a major league team puts on an 18-year-old. You know, there's zero back-to-back -back pitching for players a lot of times until they get to the big leagues. I've seen some pitch, pitch counts that say a 7-year-old can pitch back-to-back -back days if he doesn't throw X amount of pitches. That's insane to me. Um you know, my kid's not seven yet, but I've seen the way that his body changes on a weekly basis. Seven-year-olds are growing even quicker at that point. You know, they're just, they're different every day. And I, I, I personally just don't understand why, not necessarily why, but how do these groups get away with having looser restrictions for a seven-year-old than a rookie ball coach has for an 18-year-old? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just, just to be clear, we're, I mean, Armcare.com saying that player pitch should start at 10 and above, and if you're between the ages of 10 and 18, you should not be pitching on back-to-back -back outings. Um, those are some some key differentiators between what what else is out there for sure. Uh, what are um, what are some other things that that people might be um, surprised at looking at our our armcare our pitch guidelines? I think one one thing that will stand out to them is that the the maximum daily limits for 13-year-olds is a lot lower than what is currently out there with the, the current guidelines. Um, our max, our daily max when the 13-year-old division builds up to it is 70 pitches opposed to 95, I believe, with um, with the pitch count standards that are out there. And the reason being is that between the ages of 12 and 15, we have our highest spike in the growth rate. It, it's called peak height velocity. It's where, you know, um, especially in males in that particular age range, we have this accelerated growth. So if you think about, you know, you think about uh, a bridge and two pieces of land, your bridge is your soft tissue, your tendons, your ligaments, your muscles, and the two pieces of the land are your bones. Imagine the pieces of land shifting away from each other at, an, at a very fast rate. So those bones are growing, 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 growing. And what happens to the bridge, which is that soft tissue, it gets stretched, you know, and it's going under these like high rates of plasticity. And these athletes, you know, they're also on a bigger field. You know, they're throwing harder. 
they're growing at a fast rate, so tissues are getting stretched out and, and elongated. Um, you know, and now they're on a big field, and we need to be able to be a little more patient, a little bit more conservative with this age group, because this is where I think we're seeing this huge spike in injuries between the ages of 15 and 19, is from this pre-adolescent um, age group. They're, they're growing a lot, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're putting a lot of stress on them um, that's, that's in addition to just the competition alone. So let me play devil's advocate here. I'm the, I'm the coach or I'm running a um, showcase or something and, and we've got teams that are coming and they're going to be playing a lot of games in a very quick amount of time. How does this fit in? How do we make this work? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's great. Um, one thing that I think needs to happen and uh, I think it's great for baseball is that teams need to carry a, a larger roster of pitchers. And they probably need to, you know, when our, when if we don't have our pitch count start until 10, you know, we can develop every player as a pitcher. They can all learn how to pitch. And the whole key is that now you got this workload sharing model where you have a lot of arms that can handle the loads and, and not one arm gets taxed more than another. And I think that's the biggest problem is that these rosters are very small. Um, when it comes to these, you know, tournaments that are really high density, you know, some of these teams are playing five games in a weekend and they got three pitchers or four pitchers that they can count on like that, that violates every element of pitch count standards. So, you know, that, that's one thing that I can say to, to uh, coaches out there, you know, develop everyone to be a pitcher, allow them to have those skills and, uh, and maximize your roster size, especially going into these tournaments. Jordan, what's your take on that? I mean, I agree a hundred percent. You know, there's, I, I, I still work with, I want to say maybe six kids that are in that high school age range right now, six or seven, somewhere in there. They're all in the travel ball season. And yeah, they, they a lot of times like, yeah, there's, there's 11 guys on my team. And he goes, my coach wants me to not start because now he'll be able to bring me back on Sunday. I said, no. Number one, I think that's a terrible decision. And it's like, you know, I, I need to make sure that I'm at least being a voice of reason for this player. Because it's not that kids are uncoachable. It's that kids are almost too trusting sometimes is what yeah. I've noticed. Is they're too apt to say, yes, sir, I'll do that. Because a lot of parents are doing a, a pretty decent job with their kids, you know. They're, they're teaching kids to be obedient and listen and to do what's asked of them by authority. But just because someone is an authority figure doesn't mean that they have the best information at hand. So one of the instances that I told one of my one of my guys that I work with is he has a good base of shoulder strength for a 16-year-old. So I said, you know what? We're going to go with it. I will let you pitch. You get, you get 45 to 55 pitches on Friday. You're not allowed to pitch again until Sunday, and you only get a pitch if you're fully recovered. So he tested before his outing on uh, Friday, did a full arm care eval. We got his range of motion. We got his strength, all three that we're testing. And then on Sunday, it rolls around. He was still down in strength. And I said, well, tell your coach you don't get a pitch. And if he says you're pitching, just don't go. Like, what's he, he can't put you in if you're not there, number one. <laughs> and number two, like, who, the, this, this, these leagues they play in, I'm not going to say the name of the league, but I said, ask your coach who won the last tournament. 
Coach didn't know. And it's because no one cares at the end of the day. You, I remember who won the last World Series. People remember that. But you're in you're out in Arizona, Ryan. Who won the six A state tournament this year in Arizona? No idea. Exactly. I no idea. And you're heavily involved in baseball. Nobody knows because no one really cares at the end of the day. And I'm not throwing any type of baseball underneath the bus or anything like that. You know, but even Division Two baseball, who won the Division Two World Series this year? I don't know. Hmm. Do you think the scouts know? All they know is who's healthy, who's getting better, and who am I going to write my report on? And that's what matters at the end of the day. And I've recruited in high school. I didn't go to the schools that were winning state. I went to the school that had the better player. <laughs> you know, you could be, you know, at middle of nowhere, you know, town of 35 people, and you could be the best pitcher of the state. That's what matters is that you're handling your development in a way that's going to be best for you long term. Because um, those travel teams are a fantastic place to get reps. They're a fantastic place to understand if you need to adjust your practice mentalities. But they're not the be-all, end-all of whether you're going to get your scholarship or not. It's, I don't mean to go on a rant with that, but you know that's for me with pitch counts is people need to really keep the long-term picture in mind and realize that the short-term – and the long term, no one really knows what happened at those levels. So we introduce one other thing in our guidelines. It's called wave loading. And this really applies to those, those pitchers who are the ones that the coaches are going to ride. They're the ones who are hitting their 100, 100% of their max pitch counts, start after start after start. And, and we feel like they're the ones who need to look at, especially at the collegiate and, and, and higher level, they really need to look at this wave loading. Uh, Ryan, why don't you explain what that is? Yeah, yeah. So we did a little bit of sports science um, back when I was with the Angels and I was with Jordan. We looked at pitch completion rates. So it's a little bit different than pitch count. So it's basically the amount of your pitch count that you satisfied. So, you know, if I had 100 pitches and I actually threw 50 and I was taken out of the game, I had a 50% completion rate. And most of these pitchers were, were completing about 84% of the pitches that were prescribed. And they were still getting hurt. And so the, the games where pitchers were going to their 100%, you know, we're only looking at a 16% jump. And the athletes were showing there was, there was injury exposure there. So, you know, what we've had to do is, is wave load. How do we give these athletes particular instances of recovery? You know, and so what we have, you know, down for the amateur side is that if a pitcher hits their 100%, so they complete all their pitches, then next game after we give them 80%. We don't even let them go beyond that. So that gives them a, a recovery window. Then the game after that, it's a step up. It's now 90%. So these jumps going down and up are very small. Um, and then they can resume to 100%. But if we ride out a pitcher who is our top pitcher every single time they're throwing to their maximum, we are going to expose them to injury risk and fatigue and, and you know, poor performance potentially. So we have to also find ways in which we get our athletes to throw. We don't want to take away instances of throwing, um, but we can provide them opportunities to recover and still, still give us a good competitive model through the wave loading. Now at the pro level, um, the, the wave loading is a lot tighter 
So it's only a 10% up and down. So they hit 100% completion. The next one's at 90% completion. The game after would be 100%. So it kind of goes in this little wave. Now, the key take home is if at any point the pitcher achieves uh, less than 50% of their completion, that means the next game it has to be down to 80%. So that's an important feature too. So if they can't finish half the pitches that they're prescribed, they get knocked out of a game early, they have a bad first inning, we don't want them jumping from 35 pitches to 110 pitches in the next game. That's a big jump in, in workload. So we're trying to have a reasonable approach of where to put that athlete if that instance happens, that they don't complete enough of their pitches. So to me, that's the that was the really interesting concept of this that, that was very new to me in this workload management is that you can actually not work enough in, in certain situations and you and so we have to reduce your workload because that jump is something that is almost it increases your risk of injury going from such a low workload environment to such a high one so quickly and so like essentially if you're scheduled to pitch and you have a bad outing and you don't get to your 50 percent you know especially at the collegiate and upper level you're you should get those extra pitches in or you're going to be doing 80 percent at the next the next outing uh essentially is what you're saying yeah i mean we we tried a few things. Uh, we, we kicked around a few ideas. It didn't go too far in pro ball, but I think there's some teams that do it, at least at the lower levels, that if the athlete doesn't make 65% of their pitch completion and they, they complete it in their bullpen. Now, in order to do this with um, you know an amateur team, you have to carry a lot of catchers, backup catchers. And so that means if a pitcher comes out of an inning, he's got 70 pitches, um, or, or sorry, 100 pitches, and he, he comes out of an inning, and he's he's only got 35, so he's only done 35%. Well, he should be throwing another 30 pitches in the bullpen to get to that 65% of 100, and and doing that within you know maybe two innings, uh, simulated innings in the bullpen, and that way it keeps the workload constant. You know, it's it's just an amazing thing. I mean, I, I've done a few research articles that are published that show no relationship, at least at the pro level, to pitch counts, um, you know, uh, between starters or relievers or days rest or innings. But what I do believe is the impactful feature are these jumps, you know, how the athlete is moving from workload to workload and what what their their shape looks like. If it's not a wave-loaded pattern, is it a huge spike and then a big dip, a big dip? And then a big spike again, you know, there, there's something that's, you know, people are going to figure out in that pattern um, that's going to be a, a solid model for health. And, and we're starting, you know, with, with armcare.com to believe in this process and, and to, you know, put some parameters around that. Yeah, I definitely think the wave loading is something that is, is collegiate and pro level because you need the catchers and it's, you know, it, it's it takes a little work to really you know, stay on top of that. I think at the lower level, if you're using the pitch count guidelines and you're testing your strength and, and range of motion on a consistent basis and helping and using the app to watch for fatigue, uh, that should be, you know, if you're 15 years old, uh, that you're doing what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Yeah. To, to jump on some real-world examples of that, you know, I heard an interview with Pedro Martinez a couple years back. Obviously, you know, Pedro is always known for being real durable, real healthy, and he attributes one of it to having a manager when he was with the Red Sox that actually took care of him and, in a sense, wave-loaded his outings. Um, you know, he would come up, he'd be pitching, and he goes, man, you know, we're – we're dominating. I'm, I'm cruising. It's, I'm on inning six right now. I've, I'm only in like 80 pitches. And next thing you know, here comes the manager asking for the ball. He goes, what are you What are you doing? It's like, we're winning. You know, it's 3 nothing right now. I got a lead. They go, well, we trust the pen right here. We're going to go to the pen. They're going to hold it for you. He goes, but I'm fine. I'm not even at 100 pitches. He goes, well, I'm going to take you out now because I need you to go 110 in October. I don't need you going 110 today. I need you going 110 in October. So he says if it wasn't for – a manager that had some feel for, in a sense, you know, you know, wave loading before we called it wave loading. Who knows if Pedro would have been as durable as he is, you know? So that, that, that's very applicable. It's stuff that's been done, but not universally accepted through the game of baseball. Uh, you know, traditionally, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, you've obviously had a lot more uh, look into the research than I have, but from a practical standpoint, most people view pitch counts of a tiered progression like steps and then once you get to the top of the steps you stay at the top of the steps you don't you ever go higher than the, than the top of the steps and you never go down on from the steps and it's almost counter from what regular weight training does because regular <laughs> weight training and buildups have you know a one week an adjustment one week an adjustment week four hey let's deload it and then let's get to a new level you know there's always this this viewpoint of you know it's going to have ups and downs but we're going to continually you know, trudge onward. Even if we have to grind through some stuff, we're going to trudge onward. But pitch counts go 80 pitches, 90 pitches, 100, 100, 100, yeah. 100, 100, 100, and it just doesn't change. Yep, exactly. And, and that's the reason for, you know, that wave load paradigm. Even if the team doesn't have a catcher available to complete pitches, but you at least know, okay, if they hit that 100, we're going 80, 90, 100 for an amateur, 80, 90, 100, 80, 90, 100, you know, professional, 100, 90, 100. We have to give them some opportunity to recover. You know, this is physiologic tissue. This isn't, you know, PlayStation. You know, they, they, we, we don't know, you know, what's going on in their bodies. Now, with our app, we at least know their neurological condition, you know, how strong they are. And now, you know, an informed coach, an informed strength coach, clinician, pitching coach, and player, they can have conversations and be like, you know, my strength is down by eight pounds from my baseline test. You know, there, there's something going on. Like this week, you, you have me, you know, pitching. I'm, I'm up to 115 that I can have as a daily max. You know, I, we start having a discussion like this might be a week we reduce them to 80%. And I, you, you know. know on that, I'm not, uh, you know, just I'm not going after old school or new school baseball. You know, I, I still believe the pendulum is going to have to shift into the middle at some point. But you have, you know, coaches in both ends of it on the old school and the new school that, again, you bring up PlayStation and they look at a guy, they go, well, he's he's hasn't pitched in six days. Why can't he throw 120 today? I don't understand this. He should be <laughs> ready to go. Well, did did you have 4 a.m. weights with him? Plus, you know, a class that went from, you know, 6 until 10 at night. And did you have the same crappy nutrition that he had because you guys have been on the road for, 
you know, 10 days straight and he's been eating McDonald's and Burger King or, you don't know, maybe he tweaked an ankle walking down some stairs and he rolls. Like we just, you don't know because you probably didn't have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying this is across the board, but I would say there's a large chunk of baseball from these discussions that I've had where, you know, people think it is a video game. They think yeah. that, well, you know, he should be good to go. It's like, oh, it's like, it's like changing the oil in the car. It's good for another 5,000 miles. Not exactly how the human body works. You know, like even when you train consistently, Olympians, you know, the Olympics are going on right now. At least I think they are. Uh, I don't keep up with that stuff. But, you know, they're they're training. The only thing they do is pay attention to their recovery, and they have training days and they have competition days where they're just not at 100%. It's just not possible to roll out there and feel great all the time. Uh, and that's just something I think we need to account for, and it's something that – you know, the new regulations that we're trying to get rolled out and, and get a little more uh, publicity to, I guess, in the sense, account for those things. And I think, that, you know, one one point that I think we got to drive home in all of this, you know, they, they have to have like great communication with their pitchers. None of the pitchers that they should have on their staff should be throwing through pain. You know, and it's usually not one throw that does it right. This is an overuse condition. And uh, they, we have to be on the lookout for a soreness that's unusual. Like if the, if the throwing arm pain and soreness doesn't go down in 48 hours of rest, that we, sh- we should be seeking some kind of medical attention. You know, we shouldn't wait and say, oh, we'll try it out. You know, and all of a sudden, okay, it doesn't hurt at the beginning when I'm throwing. And then all of a sudden, you know, this athlete that's had a forearm flexor strain that's been undiagnosed, he loses the strength in his forearm and he increases the load on his, his elbow and his ligament snaps, you know? So there's certain rules like that, that have to apply, even though we have pitch count standards and and the new ones we're putting together, we're really excited about Um, the communication, you know, that's kind of what I'm getting at with what you're talking about, Jordan, is that coaches need to communicate, you know, quite regularly with their pitchers, you know, and if their pitchers are not feeling good, you better have backup plans because if you're putting in an athlete who his arm doesn't feel great and he's hesitant and, uh, you know, you kind of, you know, coaches influence him to get in that game, it's criminal. You're putting him, you know, at risk of going under the knife. Yeah. Just to touch on that communication, you know, it's, it's pretty standard for most of baseball as well. The managers and the pitchers do not like each other when it comes down to it because the pitcher is what's given the manager the win or the loss and that's going on his record for the rest of his life and then obviously the manager is in charge of putting the pitcher in or not he's the one writing the lineup card so i know for me personally maybe it's because i was awful but i don't know that i ever made eye contact with a manager (laughs) when i was actually playing you know they usually just looked at me and they're like why why how do i don't know why i still have you here you know like why can i not just get rid of you um but that's an important thing too is you know when i started coaching is I made it a point that with my manager, I always knew who has X amount of rest, what is the communication they have. Even if this starter has not pitched since last week and we have a rain out, maybe he's on an extra day or two of rest, how does that starter feel? Because just because you have more rest doesn't mean you necessarily feel better. So I would always be in really good communication as a pitching coach with my staff. I need to know what those guys are doing. Because I'm responsible for them. You know, I'm as a pitching coach, you need to be that safety valve and that person the, the pitcher can trust to make sure you're going to have their best interest in mind. And you relay that information to the head coach. 
Because the head coach has a lot of other stuff going on as well. Not only does he hate you because you just made him get a loss yesterday, but you got to make sure that he knows who's fresh and who's ready to go and ready to get into that game to make an informed decision. Um, so for me, what I would always do if there's any coaches listening right now is I would always give my manager three usable options. You know, if it's the fifth inning, we have our starter at 85 pitches. He's starting to get a little erratic. Say, hey, who do you want me to get moving around? I, I, I think we should go with A, B, or C. Who do you think? He goes, I, I like B. Okay, phone down, get B moving around. And then all of a sudden now when that pitcher needs to go in, he's ready to go. So now your starter doesn't have to labor through those extra pitches because the bullpen wasn't ready. So again, like you're saying, communication is so important when it comes to not just managing your pitcher's health, but managing the flow of the game so you don't run into a situation where you don't have anyone loose, and now you got to rely on that starter who's fatigued to throw an extra 10 or 12 pitches to let your bullpen get ready. So yeah. communication, communication, and more communication. Yeah, I know. I know that's not the topic, but no, I mean it's important. I mean the other thing we've been talking a lot about coaches. We've been talking about coaches and their impressions of pitch counts, but parents have to understand this stuff. You know, I'm a father of two young boys, um, and I definitely want them to pitch. I want them to learn the skill. It's an important skill, and it increases their opportunity if they're a two-way player um, to be drafted and to be recruited in college. And I need to know these things, and I need to also play a part in the protection of my son's arms. You know, and we've been speaking about this, and, and this is another thing. If, if the kids aren't really comfortable in communicating with the coach, you know, the parents need to take it upon themselves to communicate, hey, you know, my son's coming home after games, and his arm is sore. You know, we have to adjust something here with, with the pitch counts. And, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen some informed parents walk over to coaches um, and tell them, hey, my son's at 40 right now. I just want to let you know he's at 40 pitches. You know, some coaches, they're not using a pitch clicker. They're not paying attention. You know, they're not using those those tools. So, you know, the parents that are listening uh, to this, you know, you got to be in this as well. You got to be as informed as the coaches um, because that's what's going to do justice to this growing concern of injuries in, in adolescent, professional, and youth baseball. Yeah, just to, to jump on that too is the players need to be aware. I'm not asking the player to sit around with a pitch clicker and after every single throw, click it and put it in his back pocket. But he needs to be aware of these things because whether you're 16, 17, 15, you know, they're, they're, you need to be accountable for your own career at the end of the day. You need to take responsibility for your actions because you have a say in it. But then to kind of piggyback on what Ryan was saying with that as well, if your kid's not 18 – you, you're still in charge of that human being when it comes down to it. And if you don't agree with the way it's being used, they're not an adult. So that coach, even if you signed a waiver, he he's not paying the medical bill for when it comes down to it. I'm pretty sure it's your insurance that's going to be paying for it. So you need to make sure that if your kid is not 18 especially, that you know make sure the player is communicating with the coach. But as a parent, be involved in what's going on. It doesn't mean you're a helicopter parent. It doesn't mean you're – you know, a nagging from the stands, it means you're taking an interest in your son or daughter's development. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's where we should wrap up, but it's definitely hard as a parent, um, you know, especially if you got a, you know, what I, you might say is, a, is an A player who's maybe getting invites to pitch in other showcases and things like that, and it's not just on one team, and maybe you can't make every every game, you know, that they're out there, and but you still need to 
be aware of how many pitches they're throwing, how much rest they've gotten, and, and follow something. I mean, it's that important. Um, and so, you know, I'd say get, go on our site, download these guidelines, track your kids' pitches, their outings, show them how to do it, make them understand how important it is. And this is this is what you do if you want to play at the next level. You treat it um, with respect and, and you know, and, and that's how you get there. Awesome. Well, uh, I think that's a, that's a wrap for today. Everybody, thanks for listening, and uh, until next time.